All right, we're in Hebrews 3, starting at verse 7. If you want to turn there. Um, A good parent will, among other things, warn their kids of danger. The road is a dangerous place. Don't go wandering out there. The internet has a lot of bad stuff on it. God wants us to guard our eyes and our ears. And then a good parent will also give their kids a means, provide ways for their kids to avoid danger. So how about we go to the backyard instead of the front yard where there is not a road? Let's sit down and talk about the dangers of the Internet and what safeguards we can put in place. And this is something of what God gives us in the passage before us today. He loves us as a good father. He warns us of dangers that are out there that are before us, and he gives us a way to avoid the danger, a means to protect ourselves against danger. So that's what we find today. We're going to start, we're going to jump right in, start in verse 7. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now, therefore, as you know, connects us back to the previous section. So the author of Hebrews has been leading us to consider Jesus, who is unlike anyone who has ever lived, who is at the center of God's purposes for the whole world. Jesus is God in the flesh. As the author has been saying, he's greater than the angels. He's greater than that um, great patriarch Moses. Jesus is also the perfect human, fulfilling what we as humans were meant to fulfill and suffering and dying in our place for our sins. So Jesus is, in a very simple term, the subject of of Hebrews. The person work of Jesus is the focus of our confession. Christians don't merely adhere to a set of beliefs. We don't merely adhere to a set of morals and ethics. We don't merely follow a set of religious practices or spiritual practices We adhere to and we confess a person, Jesus, God in the flesh. He is our confession. The question here in this text is how do we know that we belong to him? How do we know that our confession is real and genuine? So if you go back just one verse to verse 6 in Hebrews there, it tells us we are his and it It's using this imagery of house. It says, we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So one of the ways that we have assurance of belonging to God for eternity is that we hold fast to the end. We persevere. We endure. We keep going. At the same time, it's true to say that God keeps us going. God holds us fast. God sustains us. God keeps us. Thankfully, our hope is not ultimately in our own strength and resolve and ability, but in God to keep us going. God provides the strength and the desire and the will to persevere until the end. And this is an area, this area of assurance, is one where there's a lot of confusion in our day in modern Christianity. We can tend to think that assurance is all about pointing backwards to a decision we made for Christ. 
And we can tend to make little distinction between coming to God initially and then proving that we are his. Coming to God is through repenting of our sins and trusting in Christ alone as our Lord and Savior. We are saved by faith and faith alone because our hope is in God and God alone. In what he's done for us in Jesus, which is completely sufficient. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. As we were told earlier in this letter, Jesus tasted death for everyone. He did it for us. By grace, we believe in him. And yet the way that we can have assurance of our salvation is not merely pointing back to that day that we first believed. It's not saying, well, I raised my hand at summer camp. I prayed a prayer. I asked God to come into my heart. I went through confirmation. If we are trusting in the fact that we did something in the past, we are trusting in the wrong thing. And we are ultimately trusting in ourselves and not in God. No, the way that we belong to Christ has to do with things like, do I continue to trust in him alone? Do I continue to look to him as my Lord, my all, my joy, my life, my hope? Is there evidence of God's spirit, fruit of the spirit in my life? Does my life give evidence of new desires and new strength that God promises to work in those whom he saves? Is my attitude towards sin changing so that I no longer dwell in it without repenting, but repent of it? And to be clear, this doesn't mean that our relationship with God is hanging in the balance every day, depending on how we're doing. That's not how grace works. But our relationship with God, if genuine, does bear fruit, including the fruit of perseverance, of keeping going, of making it to the end. And part of the reason that we know this is the case, that part of the reason that we know that assurance is not simply pointing back to a day or a decision, is that the Bible gives us a lot of warnings. Warnings about the ongoing state of our life right now Warnings about continuing on faithfully. And that's what we have before us today. Yes, we've only covered one word. We're growing on. <laughs> Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now note that the author of Hebrews, he's about to quote Psalm 95, which we actually went through this summer. Note that when he brings up this psalm, he can say of this psalm, and presumably all of the Old Testament, as the very words of God, as the Holy Spirit says, God, the Holy Spirit. We have the very words of God in written form that we might know God and come to him. Um, we could go into other examples, but Jesus has this very same view of the Old Testament. They are the words of God. The author quotes Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, remember that we are on the topic of holding fast our confidence, our confession of Jesus until the end. And, and the author here gives us an example from the life of Israel of what not to do. So this looks back on the life of Israel to an event in Exodus 17. 
God had just rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt from their slavery in Egypt. He had done this with mighty signs and wonders to show his power over Egypt and also to show his care for and protection of his people. As they're journeying away from Egypt, God leads them by pillars of cloud and fire. When the Egyptian army comes after them, they begin to fear and complain. God miraculously brings them through the Red Sea, destroys the army. When there was only bitter water to drink, they cry out to God, and God provides good, sweet water. When they get hungry, God provides food and manna and quail. In other words, God shows again and again that he is good, that he can be trusted, that he is with them, that he is for them, that he is like a good father who will take care of his people. After all of this, the Israelites once again come to a place where there was no water, and rather than remembering what God had done for them, rather than praying to God, they complain to Moses. They quarrel with Moses and say, give us water to drink. And so this is what this quote in Hebrews, this testing of the Lord, is speaking of. So what is going on here? Well, the repeated evidence of God's goodness and care and power had little effect on the Israelites. They chose to harden their hearts to God when he was trying to soften and open their hearts. God, God says there that they have not known my ways, but this clearly wasn't for lack of evidence, right? They saw with their eyes God's greatness and glory. It was clearly evident. Uh, we could look back on that generation of people and say, how could it not be more obvious? You had the mighty miracles, 10 plagues coming out of Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, the miraculous food and drink in the desert, God showing up and speaking to them in power at Mount Sinai. What more could you ask for? But for them, as well as for us, the issue isn't ultimately about evidence, about, but about the state of our hearts. They didn't truly see and know and come to God because they hardened their hearts. You see, faith in God is not merely about having evidence, about being convinced intellectually. Yes, there is a place for examining the evidence. His Christianity is a historically-based religion that is, in fact, true. But ultimately, what God is after is our coming to him with soft and pliable, teachable, and open hearts. Opening ourselves up to him as a good father, as a trustworthy father. And ultimately, as it says, that generation of Israelites did not enter the promised land. That's what it means by my rest. They were made to wander in the desert for 40 years. Their unbelief, their hardened hearts, kept them from entering the land that God had spoken of. And the reason the author of Hebrews quotes this and puts it here in Hebrews is that there is the danger of us doing the same thing. Not missing out merely on a geographical land, but losing out on belonging to God now and into eternity. And the author helps us make this connection. So verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care, brothers, 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, first off, notice that this is spoken to the church. Brothers and sisters, this is spoken to believers. This is a warning for those who would consider themselves a part of Christ. So first thing, we have to be careful not to read this and think that this is for those other people. There's no way that we would ever ever do this. We must not think that we are immune from slowly adopting an evil, unbelieving heart. No, this is for all who would claim Christ, who would mark the box Christian on a form. Take care. Stop and consider. Observe your life diligently. There are temptations and dangers and deceptions that you will face. We cannot afford to be oblivious or lazy or distracted or apathetic. We must be diligent. Now, the move towards unbelief and a hard heart is not always a dramatic one. It's often a slow fade. And it's not even always a conscious decision, but many small, unreflective decisions, many unrepentant sins over time. John Owen famously says, be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's no middle ground. We need to be diligent at all times. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Falling away from God is ultimately due to a hardened, unbelieving heart, which he says is evil. Now, we usually explain it in different ways. You don't usually hear someone say, well, my heart became hardened and unbelieving. No, we we usually explain it in different ways. I'm no longer convinced of the evidence. I don't agree with all of the commands of Scripture. If God were real, he would show himself to me. He wouldn't allow this to happen to me. The church is too messed up. Christians are too messed up. Now, there is value in working through such complaints and hardships, questions and doubts. And we must be ready to lovingly and patiently walk through these with other people. However, At the end of the day, there is more going on with our hearts than our words convey. There is always a moral aspect to turning away from God. There is a temptation in our day to simply chalk things up to, well, I'm merely being true to myself. I'm following the evidence where it leads. Or my moral convictions are more refined than the supposed God of the Bible. I've moved past that. We tend to make heroes out of those who reject their faith of their parents, who walk away from the church, who break free from the morals and beliefs passed down to them. You see this in movies and books all over the place. But there is nothing honorable about falling away from God. There's nothing heroic about that. And it is never inevitable, something that just happens to us that we had no control over. We have a living God, creator of the entire world, and he has called us to himself. He's revealed himself to us in nature, in his word, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's pursued us and opened up, 
opened up a way for us to come to him by dying for our sin and guilt, conquering the power of sin, death, and hell. And he's given us great and sufficient evidence of his power, of his presence, of his goodness, of his grace, of his worth. Like with the Israelites, the issue is not ultimately lack of evidence, but whether our hearts are soft or hard whether we are willing to trust God or not, whether we are willing to be cared for by God, led by God, or to take things into our own hands. This is the issue with your heart, with my heart. This is the issue with the hearts of those that you interact with, your, your loved ones, your neighbors, your coworkers. The battle is going on in our hearts. Now, the wonderful thing about this passage is that it doesn't merely just leave us with a warning and then expect us to figure out how to, how to go about it. No, it also gives us a way to guard ourselves against this. Verse 13. And we're going to spend most of our time here. But exhort one another every day as long it is, as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, and that's today is it's hearkening back to, to verse 7 there, Psalm 95. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. One of the means that God has given us to safely sustain us to the end is each other, is the church. One of the means that God has given us to persevere and stay protected from the Deception of sin and hardening hearts is others, other believers who know us, who have a relationship with us, and who can speak into our lives. The word exhort here means to urge, implore, beseech, encourage, invite. In a healthy church, there is to be urging, imploring, beseeching, encouraging, inviting we are to walk alongside one another and help each other keep going down the path. And if there is straying from the path, to warn one another. Now, ideally, in a healthy church, most of this happens in ways that we openly invite. We put ourselves in situations, in relationships, in Bible studies, in small groups, where the context allows for and expects speaking into one another's lives. Perhaps even on an individual basis, you ask someone, hey, can you, can you examine my life? How am I doing in this area? Or, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you help keep me accountable in this? Or, I'm struggling to remember who God is and to hold on to these truths about God. Can you remind me of them? There are also times when this exhortation isn't openly invited, isn't initiated by us, but is equally necessary. When a brother or sister sees a concerning pattern in our lives, sees some ongoing unrepentant sin or the beginnings of a hard heart, and they bring it to our attention. To see something like this and to say nothing or to say, well, that's not my responsibility, is not loving. It's not the picture of a church that God gives us. That's like a parent letting a child explore the excitement of a highway on their own. Go for it. Again, in a healthy church, most of this exhortation isn't 
correctional, isn't confrontational. It's just a normal rhythm of relationships founded on Christ. When you put yourself in these kinds of relationships with this focus, you realize that you have responsibilities to one another and that you need others and that they need you. And the reason that this is not only helpful but necessary is what we find at the end of verse 13 there. Sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful. The deceptive, the deceitfulness of sin. And you know who sin deceives? All of us. And you know what the hard thing, the the thing that is so difficult about being deceived? You don't know you're being deceived. This gets at the heart of a doctrine of sin. This is one of the most important aspects of sin for us to grasp. Sin blinds us. It deceives us, as it did Adam and Eve. Um, I've used this analogy before, but sin is not just like that. the bad guys in old cartoons that are always dressed in full black, have a massive scar on their face, and always accompanied by scary music. Well, of course that's the villain. No. Sin is attractive. Seems sensible. Appears good and right. Pleasing. And again, Remember that this is written to believers. The deceptive nature of sin doesn't go away when you come to Christ. Having the Spirit in us, leading and guiding us, doesn't completely eradicate our sin or its ability to deceive us. And if we think that we can never be deceived, we are probably most likely to be deceived. I remember Nate saying that when he is in the position of interviewing someone for a job, He asked them to rate their level of self-awareness on a scale of 1 to 10. And how do you know that you're at that level? If someone thinks that they're a 9, 10, 25, we should have reason for great concern. Probably trust them less than someone who says a 5. Because someone who is so sure that they see everything correctly is dangerous, is deluded, and doesn't know it. And so as Christians... We should have the humility to affirm that we don't see ourselves and we don't see the world with 2020 vision. We have blind spots. And without some help, this deception has the potential to harden our hearts. Deception about our sin and unbelief in our lives has the potential to lead us away from God. That's what the passage says. Exhort one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so think about what this means very practically for us. If we are to be guarded against the deception of sin and the hardening of heart that it brings and the unbelief that it leads to, if positively we are to make it faithfully to the end and, and be assured that our faith is genuine, well, first, this means we need Christian and brothers and sisters or Christian brothers and sisters around us on a regular basis who know us well. Secondly, we need to put ourselves in situations where there is a context for them to speak into our lives. Again, once you do that, once you put yourselves in those situations, most of this is natural, invited, welcome. And so you surround yourself with people who love the Lord and love the Lord enough to speak into your life. Third, we need to work to be approachable. 
teachable, open to feedback, openly invited. And when someone attempts to exhort you in an uninvited way, give them grace. Rarely, if ever, do we do this perfectly. It is so easy to focus on the less than graceful way that someone speaks to us or the fact that we disagree with most of it that we fail to consider anything they say. I don't remember who said it, but if only 5% of what someone brings to your attention is true, try to focus on and learn from that 5% rather than spending all of your time justifying and excusing and defending against the 95%. And then fourth, the times when you are least aware of your need for others, your need for the church, just might be the times when you need it the most might be the times when you are most susceptible to sin's deception and need the perspective and witness of others. On the other side of this, this isn't only about you getting something from the church. You also need to be willing to give this in the church. Are you putting yourselves in situations where you can encourage and exhort others, where you can speak into other people's lives? The church needs you even when you aren't aware of your need for it. And it goes without saying that this is one of the many reasons doing church online isn't actually doing church. Now, by all means, go out and listen to great teaching and preaching, podcasts online, whatever, but no teacher, no matter how great, can exhort you personally through your phone over the Internet. No church no matter how great their website and production is, can disciple you personally. In other words, you need the local church. And you need the local church in a way that provides a context for this. It's very common to hear people today say that they are a Christian, but rarely, if ever, gather with the church. Now, the issue isn't you can't be a Christian if you don't gather with the church. The issue is that you've removed yourselves from the very means of sustaining and protecting and proving your faith in God. The problem is that sin is deceptive and all the more so when we're isolated. And then one last thing on this verse. There's one form of this argument that sounds very Christian. All I need is the Bible. All I need is God's Spirit leading me. Perhaps we can point to certain verses that seem to say this. But this passage corrects that. Now, yes, if you had no opportunity to be around other believers and all you had was God's word and his spirit, you would have much. If you were bedridden and could not actually physically gather with other believers but had God's word and spirit, you would have much. And hopefully a church would be willing to minister to you in other ways. But that is not the situation most of ourselves find ourselves in. We do have the opportunity to gather with one another we do have this great means of sustaining and protecting and proving our faith and of guarding ourselves against deception and hard hearts. And we are unwise to not make use of it. And we have a few final verses. We're not going to spend long on these. They, they support and reaffirm everything we've said so far. But let me read them till the end of the chapter, starting at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence, original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? 
Was it not all those who led, left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Again, the overarching topic here is making it to the end safely, being assured that our faith is genuine. And verse 14 says that one of the evidences that we have a share in Christ and all of his benefits now that we are truly his is that we hold our confidence firm to the end. This confidence isn't a confidence that you prayed a prayer at some point or raised a hand or have always considered yourself a Christian or went through confirmation. This is a confidence that God welcomes and saves all who come to him. He receives with joy all who come to him. And he sustains and keeps and protects all who come to him. True believers make it to the end faithfully. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so, church, believers, God's will for you our will for you, our hope for you as pastors of this church, the, the hope and will of your fellow members of this church is that you would hold your original confidence firm to the end. We are excited about your day of baptism. We are excited about your membership into this church, your conversion. But our excitement and joy and care doesn't stop there. We want to see you make it to the end, into the joy of your Creator. And to this end, we gather together. We commit to one another. We, we baptize believers into Christ and in his church. In communion, we, we celebrate our union with God and our membership in one another. In studies, in small groups, in both formal and informal ways, we build relationships where this kind of exhorting and encouraging one another can happen. And as pastors, we seek to shepherd you and, and lead and teach you through both sin and suffering to cling to Jesus. As long as there is the possibility of being deceived, of being hardened, of falling away, we need one another continually, regularly. The church needs you, and you need the church. Let's pray.